All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that was Lead Chicken, one of the greatest heavy poultry bands of all time. But I'm not here to chicken out because this is the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast, and I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor, and I'm here to cluck about fishing. And this week, we have got a great show lined up because we're going to have a great conversation with Mr. Witt Fosberg, the president and CEO of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. We'll also take a bourbon break today, and I'll pour a few drams of Slaughterhouse American whiskey and give you my thoughts about it. I'm also going to count down my top 10 lures for targeting King Mackerel because there is nothing like a smoker king burning line from your reel. And even though this is the Rodcast, we do like to keep it real, or at least keep it on the real. Really, we do. So let's put it in the rod holder, sit back in the captain's chair, drop down to idle speed, and troll up some trophies. Hey, welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get cast. Welcome, welcome, my listening crew. I am honored today to have Mr. Witt Fosberg joining us on the Rodcast. Now, Mr. Fosberg is the president and CEO of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, or TRCP for short. And TRCP is a nonprofit coalition of conservation organizations, grassroots partners, and outdoor-related businesses, the main goal of which is to encourage increased federal funding for conservation while preserving access for hunters and anglers. In fact, TRCP makes it pretty clear that their mission is, and this is a quote, to guarantee all Americans quality places to hunt and fish. Mr. Fosberg sits at the helm of this important organization. And prior to joining TRCP in 2010, he spent 15 years at Trout Unlimited, playing a critical role in the organization's evolution into a conservation powerhouse. Additionally, he served as fisheries director for the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, was the chief environment and energy staff member for Senator Tom Daschle, and was a wildlife specialist for the National Audubon Society. And in 2015, he was honored as the Conservation Partner of the Year by Bass Pro Shops. Now, Fosberg grew up hunting and fishing in upstate New York and was a member of Team USA in the 1997 World Fly Fishing Championships. He's got a BA in government from Georgetown and a master's from Yale and the School of Forestry. He's also coached crew at the collegiate level for 15 years. Mr. Fosberg, I cannot thank you enough for all of your work over the years to protect both the places where Americans hunt and fish and our rights to be able to hunt and fish. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rodcast. Sid, it's great to be here, and uh, obviously it's something I love to do too, so it doesn't really seem like work. Oh, excellent. Then we'll have some fun today. Those opportunities where you get to have fun talking about fisheries policy. So, Bring it on. All right. Well, so on the Rodcast, I like to kick things off with some origin story conversation. Could you tell us first a little bit how you got introduced to fishing and hunting and then about how the passions you developed for fishing and hunting in the outdoors came to steer your career tra- trajectory? Uh, sure. I grew up in the woods of upstate New York. My dad worked for the conservation department. Uh, we had a woodlot, including a trout stream that ran through it. We had no neighbors. And uh, so my brother and I were the original free-range children who would sort of go outside and play in the woods and in the stream. And they had a fly rod in hand by the time we were walking. And usually that had a worm on the end of it. And uh, we knew every little pool in that trout stream and probably had poked every brook trout, you know, over six inches in that stream as well. Uh, so it was really part of growing up. And then, you know, I got involved with conservation policy when I went to Georgetown undergrad. I was a government major and got to the end of uh, four years and still felt I knew more about wildlife and forestry and fisheries than I did about world geopolitics. So got my first job out of college with National Audubon Society and uh, just continued to evolve that you know, over time but always within that realm of environmental policy, hunting and fishing, fish and wildlife. 
And, uh, you know, my brother had the same addiction. He now works for the Park Service out of Boston, runs their Northeast Rivers program, doing wild and scenic river conservation and working with communities on their riverfront corridors, you know, throughout that part of the world. So we both uh, tend to go back to our camp in the Adirondacks and fish with our families in the summer. And then, uh, you know, obviously I, I can use the excuse of getting away with a donor or with a partner group and hit the water around here or pretty much any place from time to time. So I enjoy it very much. Oh, that's fantastic. What a, what a great story and what a great way to end up doing what you're doing. So with that in mind, could you tell our listening crew a bit about what TRCP does? I think for a lot of anglers, TRCP is certainly visible. I mean, we all see that sign in every Bass Pro Shop honoring TRCP's conservation efforts. But I think that anglers and hunters would like to know more about what TRCP does. So the brainchild, uh, TRCP was the brainchild of a guy named Jim Range. And Jim had been the chief counsel for Howard Baker when Baker was majority leader of the Senate back in the 80s under the Reagan administration. They're both from rural Tennessee, both loved to hunt and fish, and was very much sort of an old school Republican conservationist. And he'd get lobbied by all these groups on their pet little issues, be it you know trout or grouse or pheasants or... ASA or whatever, and he became frustrated with the fact that he felt that the community was winning little battles and losing big wars by not working together properly. And so in 2002, he created this organization to bring all the groups that cared about conservation together to speak in a common voice on issues that were too big for any one group. That could be public land policy, energy policy, marine fisheries policy, water policy, you name it. And uh, today, you know, Jim suddenly passed away in 2009 from kidney cancer. I came in 2010 and have continued his original vision. So today we have 62 different organizations under the broad TRCP umbrella. Not a trade association. Nobody pays dues. All we ask is that they roll up their sleeves and work together in, you know, a common interest on shared issues. So things like, you know, the Modern Fish Act would fall under that category, more recently, a lot of the infrastructure bill or the climate bill would fall under that. The farm bill, which is coming up next year, you know, we have 25 groups in our wildlife and agriculture working group, and they come together, hammer out a collective policy on farm bill. And then yeah, part of our job is to make sure that we all stay in line and don't break off and cut side deals. So, so far been pretty good. I think our success, our track record speaks for itself. That's excellent. Yeah. And there's no doubt that you all have been doing amazing things. So Theodore Roosevelt, last year you wrote a blog post about uh, Roosevelt's legacy and its relevance to conservation. I was wondering if you might tell us a bit about the influence of Theodore Roosevelt on American conservation approaches and why his work is still important. Well, I mean, really, you can go back to his time in the 1880s, and it was Roosevelt that helped create the modern conservation system. He found the Boone and Crockett Club that time to and the market hunting he was seeing out west, uh, which was really the first of the modern conservation organizations. And, uh, you know, when he was president, I mean, even before he be president, when his wife and his mother died on the same day, Valentine's Day, he went out to North Dakota and became a cowboy and basically retreated from public life for a couple of years. And he really credits that with what made him the man that he became. And he thought that every American ought to have that same opportunity to go out and test themselves in the wild. And he envisioned a conservation system in this country that was very different than what you know you would experience in Europe, where it was the landed gentry that owned the fish and wildlife, and hunting and fishing were sports of the rich and the elite. And here he thought it was something that every American, regardless of class, you know, wealth, you know, status, race, ought to be able to do. And so we've developed that conservation system in a very different way than had been done in Europe. And while he was president, he set aside 230 million acres for all Americans to enjoy, to get outside to chase critters if they wanted to, or just to be in the wild. And it's, you know, then the sporting community at that time, you really created the early environmental laws from, you know, stopping the market hunting to the first conservation laws to the public land laws. And you think back in those times, and it was, you know, the groups of that era were groups like the, the Wildlife Society, the National Wildlife Federation, the Isaac Walton League, 
groups that didn't have any one critter focus, they didn't have any one gear, any one species, any one geography. I mean, they cared about conservation broadly. And it was really in the beginning of the 1930s when Ducks Unlimited was created that that began to change. And groups like DU and then TU in the 50s, the Turkey Federation, Pheasants Forever, uh, you name it today, you know, there is a group out there that has you know, done remarkable things of bringing back at-risk species. Now, the downside of all that good work was that loss of collective vision on federal policy, and that's where a TRCP comes in. That's excellent. And Roosevelt's just such a great figure to have, have initiated not just those conversations, but also to be the inspiration for TRCP. I do want to note that um, recently on the TRCP blog, that uh, Liz Ogilvie had this great post about Roosevelt's church in D.C. being up for sale and the role it might be, be able to play in future conservation work as well, which is a great way to just maintain that legacy as well. Yeah, it's neat. I mean, every, you know, he would walk up the six blocks from the White House to this church and, uh, you know, Grace Reformed Church and was very involved. He laid the cornerstone of the church. You know, he was, you know, if he couldn't make a sermon or a service on Sunday, he would write a letter to the pastor saying he was not going to be there. And uh, it's a cool place. And the folks that are running it now, the man and the woman that you know, basically run the pastor and his wife and you know, Liz interviewed Jessica, the wife, have just a great vision. I mean, not only just, you know, restoring a cool building and recognizing Roosevelt, but also using it as a gathering place for conservation. And uh, so, listen, we're going to help them how we can. We'll put the word out about it. We'll encourage folks to donate to it. Yeah, we're doing a you know a, a meeting at the board meeting this summer is going to be at the you know the Theodore Roosevelt Library in North Dakota that is soon to begin construction. So he'll have his own presidential library out in Medora where he spent those years recovering from the losses as a family and where he became a man in his words. Oh, that's fantastic! Love to see that legacy kept alive in those ways. All right, so Roosevelt aside, I want to get you to talk about something that's been very important to me in my own work something that really drove me to write my book, Fishing Gone, Saving the Ocean Through Sport Fishing. And that's the ways in which the revisions to the Magnuson-Stevens Act and the development of the Modernizing Recreational Fishing Act, un un Act unfolded. And TRCP had a big hand in this legislative unfolding. And in 2014, TRCP organized the Commission on Saltwater Recreational Fisheries Management, which is more commonly known as the Morris Deal Commission, referring to the leadership of Johnny Morris, CEO of Bass Pro, and Scott Deal, president of Maverick Boats. Now, the commission was an expert panel of state and federal agency administrators, researchers, industry representatives, and econ economists who worked to promote a proactive vision for saltwater fisheries management. Could you talk about TRCP's role in the Morris Deal Commission and both the importance of what the commission published in that report, A Vision for Managing America's Saltwater Recreational Fisheries, that then ultimately was picked up as the foundation for the Modernizing Recreational Fishing Act? Yeah, so when I came to TRCP, I mean, I was not seeped in, you know, saltwater fish policy at all. I mean, I had spent 15 years dealing with you know, terrestrial fish policy and particularly cold water fish policy when I was at Trout Unlimited. But it became over and it became pretty clear that, you know, that was, there was all this acrimony. And you had the environmental community fighting with the recreational fishing community in places like you know, California, with the Marine, you know, the Marine Life Protection Act, which excluded recreational fishing from large parts of the coast. And we had, you know, fights of red snapper in the Gulf going on. And it was just, you know, it was a mess. And, you know, in my mind, recreational fishermen had always been fundamental to conservation. And the notion that we were at odds with the environmental community, which had made this essentially deal with the devil with the recreation, the commercial fishing organizations, just seemed, you know, insane. And one day, you know, Mike Nussman, who at that time was running American Sport Fishing Association, and Bob Hayes, who was then the, I think, general counsel emeritus at, Co at a Coastal Conservation Association, invited me down to lunch in Alexandria. And I went down there and they basically said, okay, our community is really good at saying what it doesn't like. It doesn't like marine protected areas. It doesn't like you know federal control. It doesn't like this. We have a much harder time saying what we're in favor of. And we need to get the community together with a proactive, positive vision based around conservation and access. And so they pitched the idea of us organizing and then running a, the Morris Steel Commission, which eventually did lead to the Modern Fish Act. 
but essentially as a way to get the community from down on its haunches in a defensive position to moving forward with a positive conservation access-based vision for where we go forward. Because, you know, the notion that we were still managing recreational fisheries under commercial fishing paradigm is crazy. I mean, the ex goals are the exact opposite. In commercial fishing, your goal is to kill as many fish as efficiently as possible. Recreational fishing, the goal is to catch as few fish as possible and have a great time and spend a bunch of money doing it. And as Nussman would like to point out, you know, most recreational anglers are really bad and they need a whole lot of fish in the ocean to be successful. And that's certainly the case with me and a lot of others I know. And, you know, so conservation should go hand in hand with that. So we did this year long process where we brought together this blue ribbon panel. We had the key staff members from the various sport fishing groups to basically staff this and had a facilitator and then released the report and then did a media and political outreach in DC with Johnny Morris, you know, with Larry McKinney at Hart down in Texas and others, really explaining this to lawmakers. At that time, there was very little appetite for opening up the Magnuson Act because the environmental community was pretty happy with it and the commercial guys were pretty happy with it. The only people who were complaining were the recreational community. So we crafted the Modern Fish Act which then ended up passing the standalone bill without opening up Magnuson per se. And while there was a lot of discretion in how that was done, it finally gave the green light to NOAA and National Marine Fisheries to start managing recreational fisheries in a fundamentally different way. And they've begun doing that. And part of that was just come out with a recreational fishing policy. Until then, you know, as you know, you know, NOAA had never had a recreational fishing policy. And they had done plenty of things on the commercial side, but they treated the recreational guys as very much second-class citizens. And so the one thing that didn't get done in that bill that we're now we need to work on is the forage base. And so we had you know, several recommendations that were you know, top line in terms of you know, just alternative management and you know, things like that. But the one thing we didn't get in the Modern Fish Act was forage fish. So now really ASA and Mike Leonard have crafted, you know, a forage fish conservation act that is pending in Congress right now. And if we can get that passed either through the, with the Magnus Act reauthorization or more likely as a standalone bill, then uh, I'd say we can pat ourselves on the back for a job pretty well done. There are always going to be fights at the council level or at the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission or bodies like that, but at least the, the deck won't be stacked against us. I want to come back in a minute to the Forage Fish Conservation Act, uh, particularly given some of the stuff you've already written about that. But I want to stick with the the Morris Deal Commission um, for a moment. Uh, so when Eileen Sobeck, who was the NOAA Marine Fisheries Administrator, introduced the A Vision for Managing America's Saltwater Recreational Fisheries Report at the Miami International Boat Show in February of 2015, the report identifies six guiding principles. Now, I'm not going to go through all six of these principles, though they're all important, but I want to ask about your thoughts about one of the guiding principles, because I think it really tells us a lot about contemporary thinking about conservation, and that's the principle that recreational fishing policy needs to provide scientifically sound and trusted social, cultural, economic, and ecological information. Really, this is one of the first times we've seen the importance of the social and the cultural emphasized as on par with the economic and the ecological approaches to policy. Could you talk a bit about why this cultural focus became part of the guiding principles for this? Yeah, and again, I wasn't in NOAA you know, when they released this, but yeah, I think we had some influence on it. And you know, I think we can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the commercial side in terms of economics, and I think all the data shows that. And in general, there is greater economic impact from recreational fishing than commercial fishing. If you look at all the, you know, if everything from marinas to boat sales to fishing tackle to you name it. But, you know, that really misses it. I mean, you know, because, you know, there is something far more fundamental to getting out there on a weekend with your kid and having that experience the same way Roosevelt did in the Dakotas. And, uh, you know, that is something that's really hard to quantify. And we always, you know, see the commercial side as like, oh, these larger than lives characters that we need to preserve that cultural lifestyle. Well, listen, it's the same thing on the recreational side. It looks a little bit different, but I mean, you know how important it is to get out there and the, you know, the, you know, basically those experiences you've had that helped shape you. And that's true with all of us. I mean, if it wasn't, you know, when I was in grad school in Connecticut, I was 
wading the flats on Long Island Sound trying to find striped bass in my fly rod, and we found a few, but there weren't many striped bass back in those days. I mean, those had, those were experiences were fundamental to the work I'm doing today. And, uh, you know, that's hard to quantify economically. Yeah, I mean, that, to me, I think I think you also hit on a key point there. I think, you know, at least from my reading of the situation, I think the fact that the recreational side of things began to be able to show the economic influence on par, if not more than the industrial side of things, also got Noah's attention in a big way. Big time. No question about that one. And uh, but again, to their credit, they recognize that it's more than just dollars and cents, too, that there are a ton of people out there using this resource and respecting it. And those are the future guardians of that conservation that you you and I and so many millions of others are today. And we without that experience, they're not going to be there. Right. Absolutely. So you've also been a big proponent of conservation policies needing to be based in science. And I think you wrote a piece for the Orlando Sentinel a while back about why science needed to be the influencing factor in making policy decisions about Florida black bear conservation rather than relying on emotions and politics. And of course, you were writing about the black bear situation in Florida, but your underlying philosophies are much more expansive than being applicable to one context. That's a tough demarcation to make these days between science and emotion and politics. Can you talk about how we keep focused on the science in conservation matters? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. And I don't remember the, I remember generally the piece. I don't remember what my argument was in general. But what we're seeing more and more today is wildlife management being taken out of the hands of the professionals, the scientists, the folks who've you know, trained in this stuff, and instead, you know, legislatures you know, making decisions. And you see it on the left and you see it on the right. You see it you know, from banning bear hunting in New Jersey and places like that to you know, bounties on wolves in Montana and Idaho. I mean, you know, both sides have you know, a lot to be ashamed of. And what we need to do is to get back into that sensible center you know, where you know, we, like, we may not agree with it, but the science is supporting that, the professionals are doing it, and as users, we need to accept that and agree with it. And listen, if we come up with better science and say that you know, they're wrong, great. But let's keep this out of the hands of the politicians and in the hands of the professionals that we pay good money to run this stuff and to know this stuff. I think that was also a big key point in the Modernizing Recreational Fishing Act was that emphasis on there needs to be science, there needs to be data, and then actually setting parameters for how that science needs to be gathered and what organizations are supposed to do with that science. Yeah, and you think about, you know, you get a mail survey months after you fished asking what you caught and where you caught them. I mean, that is not 2022 technology. And, uh, you know, I think you, folks like, you know, I just got back from deer camp last week and got a nice buck and reported that. I mean, folks are used to doing that all on my phone and folks are used to doing that now. So the notion that, you know, we're going to abide by this sort of ar arcane old system that we've used for a long time that doesn't work particularly well, whereas we can get the anglers engaged. You don't have to give up your honey hole, but you can report what you're catching. And, you know, the agency is going to be much more real-time data. And that's always been the knock against the recreational side is they're unaccountable because you don't have, you know, a handful of ports where you can count all the fish that are coming in like you do on the commercial side. Every place you have a dock and somebody can roll a boat into the water, you potentially have another place where you have an unaccountable angler, or so Noah would say. And I think you're finally starting to see the states use the fishermen and the recreational anglers and modern technologies to get way better data than we've had in the past. But it's still slow to get the federal agencies to accept that. And I agree that you can cook data in a bunch of different ways, but you know the notion that we're using these old surveys, either telephone calls or mail surveys, that's just not the way the world works anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And from a data science perspective, surveys just don't produce the kinds of information you really want. But I think also in what you're saying, there's also a, a, a big moment for citizen science or for citizen science here, too. And I think that um, you know, the Red Snapper had become one of the touch points for this, that the observations that anglers, both industrial, commercial and recreationals are making, is providing a lot of the data that's just not being looked at by the feds in a way that we're providing accurate information. No, I mean, you hear all the anecdotal accounts, and again, they're anecdotal, but there are red snapper everywhere. 
And uh, that seems to be a pretty darn well-managed fishery right now and not one that needs to be reined back in. And I'd listen, I'm all for if you have it at species that's in trouble or a stock that's in trouble like we do with striped bass. And we took our medicine this past year and cut way back on you know, harvest on the Atlantic. And the initial results are pretty positive. That stock is all of a sudden starting to move back up again. So it's much better to take that medicine where you need to. But if you're only you're using sort of outdated stock assessments and you're, you're countered you know, what everybody is thinking, and you're part of the way we have a striped bass is that recreational anglers up and down the coast were telling you the numbers were down. And uh, so it's not like, you know, we're, we're polyannic. Like if people are telling you across the Gulf that red snapper seem to be doing great and you can't get a, you know, a fish up without a red snapper hitting it, then, you know, there's probably something to that. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned something about um, when we were talking about uh, both Magnus and Stevens and also the Modernizing Recreational Fishing Act, you talked about uh, briefly about the legislative approaches here, which kind of begs a question too, or something that I'm interested in. And I don't know if it's begging a question or a comment that interestingly, a lot of conservation focused legislation more often than not, the, the conservation measures seem to be approached more from bipartisan support more than any other types of legislative efforts. You know, we saw that particularly in the passing of the Modernizing Recreational Fishing Act. Why do you suppose that conservation efforts are more bi bipartisan, even though there is all this emotional investment and capital investment? Well, I think that's been, you know, intentional as fundamental of what we're trying to do. I mean, you know, there's a lot to disagree about in Washington, D.C. Hunting, fishing, conservation should be not among those. I mean, it doesn't really matter whether you're a Democrat, Republican. You know, everybody likes to, you know, fish and hunt. And, uh, you know, so what we've always tried to do is to make sure that this remains from being one of those issues gets tagged as being a partisan issue. And so far, you look at everything from Modern Fish Act to, you know, we have a chronic wasting disease bill we think is about to pass that has broad bipartisan support. We just passed something called the Mapland legislation, which is about digitizing public land access routes, especially that open up landlocked public lands, passed overwhelmingly. Uh, even you know the infrastructure bill, which had a ton of good stuff for conservation, was a bipartisan bill. So I think that we have, and what we're trying to do is, you know, not you know sort of swing back and forth depending on who's in the White House or who controls Congress, but really to try to push something we consider durable legislation that withstands the swings of political pressure. And knock on wood, we've been successful doing that. And uh, I think that, you know, that's certainly our goal moving forward because it doesn't help anybody to have like what we're seeing with the Clean Water Act, which it just genuflects back and forth depending on who's in power. And that the result of that is, you know, people get away with anything they want because, you know, there's so much limbo in the agencies, in this case, the Corps of Engineers and EPA, about what is and what is not covered, that you just get, you know, almost no conservation happening. So we just don't want to let that happen with a lot of these other issues. Yeah, absolutely. I, as you're talking, I'm reminded uh, Jeff Angers of the Center for Sport Fishing Policy uh, once told me that fishing should not be political, but the sad problem is it is political. And I, I tend to fall back on that when I'm thinking about these things quite a bit. And listen, even in you know the best issue, there's going to be a 10% fringe on either side that doesn't like it. But if you can get that 80% in the middle, you know, on board generally. Great. And I'm very happy with taking the good instead of, you know, waiting for the perfect because change is incremental. Yep, absolutely. And it's also chronological and cultural. It takes time for the ideas to settle in and become the norm too. Right. Exactly. And all of a sudden these are working pretty well. You can build on those. And we've seen that in a variety of things. Look at the conservation title, the farm bill, which you're, we're now spending more on, you know, conservation, the farm bill than we spend on, you know, subsidies for growers and or for commodities and you know that's a huge win and i think we've just seen that you know increased again in the inflation reduction act the climate portion of that because you know that is one thing that you know and that's the only thing that sucks carbon out of the air which is you know things that grow and water and so the extent that we can expand conservation and get more marginal lands out of production into conservation that's good for climate it's good for soil health but it's also great for hunting and fishing good for water quality and, you know, so again, by building on those successes, you know, we're able to get more every time we get along, as long as it makes sense. 
So a minute ago, you mentioned the uh, Forage Fish Conservation Act, and I said we'd come back to it. So I want to come back to it. And um, a year ago, you wrote a blog post about the benefits of the Forage Fish Conservation Act. And you start that off by saying, forage fish like menhaden, river herring, and shad are the foundation of the marine food web. Talk to me about the Forage Fish Act. So there are a bunch of, you know, as we've seen with Menhaden, and Menhaden is the poster child of just basically abusing the foundation of the ecosystem. And it's not just a recreational fishing issue, it's a commercial fishing issue, it's an ecosystem issue. You like whale watching, you want to make sure there are a bunch of Menhaden in the water. And we have just done a terrible job of managing those bottom of the food chain you know, species. And in the past, you know, what we've done with Menhaden and other you know, species, you know, to the extent that we've regulated them at all, is you manage them the same way you would with a, you know, a top predator commercial species. In other words, you fish them to the edge and you make sure you're not killing more so much you're going to collapse the stock, but you take every fish up to that. And what we've managed to do with Menhaden in the you know, Atlantic, at least, is move to ecosystem management, where what does the ecosystem need? And based on that, how many can you take out with an industrial fishery? Which is a you know, which then resulted in pretty significant reductions in the Menhaden industry in the Atlantic, and voila, we have Menhaden up and down the coast. You know, whales returning to 100 yards of the beaches off Long Island. Striped bass populations finally turning around. Everything is benefiting, except for a very small number of people that made a bunch of money on a public resource. And so, with that same concept in mind, we wanted to make sure that there are a whole bunch of unregulated forage fish species out there that we want to get some regulation on top of before we have another crisis, before they're driven into the ground. And then, you know, the fishery, the commercial fishery just shifts to another species and drives them into the ground. So that's the whole goal of the, of the Forage Fish Conservation Act is to make sure that we're going to be managing any forage you know, species under ecosystem management and not under, you know, the old maximum sustained yield concept. Yep. And that to me has been a very interesting uh argument issue to watch unfold, um, particularly as uh, Omega shifted their base of operations and also the recognition that with Menhaden, Menha the Menhaden reduction industry is not providing, say, protein for humans or it's that it is an industry that's designed to provide fish meal to things like uh, animal feed. And it, it's got a very different kind of focus than we tend to think of of why most fisheries harvest is taking place also. Well, listen, Cook Industries bought Omega because Cook is the largest producer of Atlantic salmon and net pen operations up in Canada. And they were in the Northwest before they got kicked out of the Northwest. Um, so what we're doing is we're mining the bottom of the food chain here, sh shipping it to Canada, where they feed aquaculture salmon, which are helping put wild Atlantic salmon out of business. And then we get to import it back in, you know, as a value added product. We lose, lose, lose on this at every look place you look at. But they're a handful of people that make a bunch of money. And and also in that equation, don't forget that the energy transfer is about 10% of the forage fish protein distributed through the salmon protein. So there's also a massive energy loss here in the uh, the way that protein circulates on the planet also. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about another act because you've been very vocal about the clean. You mentioned this a minute, a minute ago about the uh, Clean Water Act and the goal to restore and maintain the chemical, physical and biological integrity of the nation's water. TRCP has identified in their three bullet points here that 92 percent of sportsmen and women want the federal government to strengthen or maintain current standards for clean water protection that 93% of hunters and anglers believe that the Clean Water Act has been a positive thing for our country, and that four out of five sportsmen and women not only support restoring Clean Water Act, and here's the interesting part, but their commitment is firm enough that they're willing to pay more in taxes to restore or maintain our nation's water. Now, that's an odd one because raising taxes is always the way to get a strike. You know, nobody wants that. So tell us about the importance of the Clean Water Act and why this kind of support is, is being garnered from anglers and hunters. Well, I'm old enough to remember when the Cuyahoga River caught fire back in Ohio in the early 1970s or late 60s, whenever it was. And uh, which was really that sort of clarion call to the nation that we had to do something about this. And the Clean Water Act has been phenomenally successful. 
And it is really, you know, but primarily on the side of direct, you know, basically source, you know, point source discharge, namely pipes out of factories that go into rivers and sewage plants that go into the rivers. And so today you know, we have far cleaner water. We have far better, you know, fishing you know, than we did in 1972 when the act was passed. But, you know, there's, you know, then we get to the next area where the majority of the pollution now is not coming from point sources, it's coming from non-point sources. So in other words, it's coming off of fields, it's coming off of, you know, paved blacktops in a development. It's coming, you know, when we, you know, just don't respect you know, the banks of a stream and, you know, take down kind of all the trees and all of a sudden there's erosion and everything else. And so, you know, there has been a huge amount of controversy since the mid-2000s and two Supreme Court rulings. They basically said, hey, Congress, you need to get your act together and clarify what is and what is not included in the Clean Water Act, because now we're at the complicated stuff. I mean, the, the pipe into the river was pretty easy. You know, how a farmer or how a developer interacts with a headwater stream is very different. But Congress has never dealt with the issue. So it's been left to administration after administration to define it. And the Obama administration, to their credit, went through a very long process and issued what they call the Waters of the U.S., the WOTUS rule, that outlined what was and what is not included. And what was included was headwater streams, because obviously, even if you can't, you know, float a boat down it, you know, those collectively, you know, influence directly that navigable water downstream. And then adjacent wetlands. So that, you know, basically keep the river from flooding, that, you know, clean the water before it goes into the main river. And that's where all the controversy is. And so you had the Obama administration do waters of the U.S. You had the Trump administration roll it back to make it even, you know, you know, very lax, so that only about half of the wetlands in the country would be covered, and less than that of headwater streams. And so it's a classic example of why we can't afford to sort of go back and forth on this. There is a sensible. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for some landowner or farmer or you know, whoever that gets into trouble for inadvertently you know, affecting a wetland someplace. But those cases are the minority. And what we have seen is that, you know, those little cases are held up as the example by the developers, because obviously the developers not going to stand up there and say, hey, this is going to cost me money. Um, they're going to put some poor slob who's, you know, just inadvertently been screwed over by the act by a faceless bureaucrat someplace. And, you know, it's just, we need to get past that. We need to have I think everybody can acknowledge, if you, especially if you look at the science, that wetlands and headwater streams are incredibly important to maintaining water quality and quantity in this country. And if we you look at a place like the Gulf of Mexico and that dead zone, that comes from all this polluted runoff coming down the Mississippi River. And it's easily dealt with, but there's no incentive to deal with it right now. And because the, you know, the rules are so unclear and farmers and developers can do pretty much whatever they want and not get in trouble at this point. That is one of the largest hypoxic zones of the 123 in the world's oceans right now also. So, yep. Yep. And so it's, I do want to go ahead. I'm sorry. And I, and I can go back to that one. It's, you know, the, the solutions are actually great for fishing and hunting too. I mean, okay, let's put in a little bit bigger buffer strips along those streams. Let's not tile you know, an agricultural stream and send all that water gushing into the river, which then inundates and overwhelms the you know, infrastructures downstream. And so in particular, if you think about things like, you know, we're going to deal with a lot more drought in the West. We need systems, natural systems that work that hold that water and let it infiltrate in the soil and not push it out as fast as we can get it. And uh, you know, so it's a it's tied to a lot of other issues as well. But issues as you, as you suggest there that there are solutions for it's just a matter absolutely of, you know, yeah. So. But you know, a lot of you know it's a useful political issue on both sides. There's not a lot of incentive to you know, come together and come up with something very reasonable. You and I could come up with a fixed clean water act tomorrow if we wanted to. But you know, a lot of people like having the issue more than they like having a solution. Absolutely. I do want to let the listening crew know too that the TRCP web pages have a great timeline of the history of the Clean Water Act going back to the 1899 Rivers and Harbors Act through last summer's announcement by the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers to commit to repealing and replacing the waters of the U.S. rule that defines which waters and wetlands should be protected under the Clean Water Act. It's a very informative timeline, and the TRCP webpages have a ton of other informative content about matters of fishing and hunting conservation 
conservation. In fact, since we're talking about Forage Fish Conservation Act, I should point out that the TRCP webpages have a very informative article called Tiny Fish, Mighty Purpose, How Bait Fish Drive Sport Fishing, about the problems we're seeing with menhaden harvest and the impact of that poorly regulated harvest on sport fishing. So um, always check out the TRCP webpages for information about these things. Now, Speaking again about the Menhaden harvest, this is for my own research, and I read a lot of newsletters and other publications from within the industrial harvest industry from around the world. And one of these, the Gulf Seafood Foundation, which identifies itself as the voice of the Gulf, and this is a 501c3 uh, nonprofit that emphasizes the importance of science and education for continued sustainable fisheries for future generations in the Gulf of Mexico. Anyway, back in 2014, in an article by the editor of Gulf Seafood News, Ed Lalo, the matter of red snapper harvest comes up and the ongoing disagreement between the industrial harvest industry and the recreational fishing industry regarding American red snapper management and quota allocations. Could you talk about what we need to do to quell the arguments between the recreationals and the commercials and debates like the red snapper management? Is, is this a, a, a unsurmountable barrier between the industrial harvest and the recreational folks? You know, I think largely it is. And I think that allocation is the key to that. But, you know, a lot of these allocations in these fisheries got basically locked in stone 30 years ago, really before there was a robust, you know, saltwater recreational industry. And, you know, so I can, you know, if I'm a recreational angler, which I am, it's pretty easy to get ticked. You know, when you see you know, a quota that was set, you know, many, many years ago, never change because, you know, it benefits the commercial side. And so, you know, Again, I don't think you're going to get around that very much. I think it's something like Menhaden. I think that, you know, the industry claims it's all for ecosystem management. And, uh, you know, we'll see about that. I mean, they're going to have their scientists throwing mud at it, you know, in every step of the way. But and then you see in the Gulf of Mexico where Omega has publicly claimed that it supports ecosystem management and wants to move into it. Um, but you know, you see the industry refuse to accept any form of regulation down there. There's no catch limit. There are no barriers to pushing up against the beaches in Louisiana. And uh, you're, you're just, you know, you're getting a more irate and irate, you know, recreational community that eventually, you know, our numbers will win um, because, you know, there are a lot more recreational anglers than there are folks that work at the pogey plants there. And, but you can have both. And we're not saying eliminate, you know, the Manhattan reduction industry. We're saying make sure that the ecosystem is protected. And then if you can take some fish out on top of that, great, go for it. Um, but, you know, and industry says the right things, they support that. But in practice, you know, and their lobbyists and their financial contributions, you know, they try to make sure that change never happens. Yeah, I think right there is the prime example of what we were talking about before in the difficulty of making the cultural change, of changing those ingrained concepts of how we think about uh, the resource and about conservation. Um, I also think that there's an interesting rhetorical issue going on there because you mentioned, you know, they say they're in you know favor of the conservation. So you look at something like the wild caught program and how they use the language of conservation, but are still engaged in the massive industrial harvest as well. Yeah, you know, uh, listen, I, I like to eat seafood, too, every now and then, preferably if I catch it myself, but I'll go and buy some. So it's not like we want to shut it down. But I just think that yeah, they haven't gotten used to the fact that the recreational industry is now at least an equal player and needs to be treated as such and can't be basically, you know, ignored or, you know, just rolled every single time, which is the way it was done in the old days. Right. And we're not, that's not happening anymore. And I think you're going to see a lot more conflict before you start seeing some common ground. Well, and that's also exactly why, why, why TRCP in particular is important because so we've got those numbers in the recreational side of thing, but unlike the commercial or industrial harvest industries, we're not cohesive. Uh, you know, what somebody in New Jersey thinking about summer flounder is thinking about conservation is not on par with someone in, uh, you know, in the Mississippi floodplain or in California thinking about tuna. We're all over the place and it's hard to bring, you know, 60 million anglers into line with one conservation approach. And that was the genesis of TRCP from the beginning, because, you know, we died this death of a thousand cuts. 
You know, if it's a trout issue, then it's not a red snapper issue. If it's a mule deer issue, it's not a duck issue. And we'd sit there and watch, you know, the community get, you know, chipped away every place. And, you know, Jim Range, to his credit, you know, basically like, listen, we're not going to take scraps anymore. We're going to get together and we're going to present a united front. We're going to stick together. We may not get everything we want. We're going to get more than we've been getting. And sure enough, we have been. Yeah, and I mean, part of the problem, of course, is there is no single galvanizing issue. I mean, the NRA can bring up, you know, not just hunters' rights, but specifically gun rights. Rod rights aren't an issue. We don't have this one thing around which to galvanize. There are too many, you know, so many issues. Yeah, but the beauty, I mean, the, the the thing that I admire the most about the NRA is that there is any attack on a gun law, any place is an attack on everybody. Right. For us, you know, we, it's not the same. It's right, not absolutely. a mule deer issue. It's not a trout issue. It's not a red snapper issue. And it's not, it doesn't affect me personally, so I can sit on the sidelines. Yep. And it, it's it's regional, and it's also, stra- I mean, tactic and strategy, right? I, why would I care what a trout f- fisherman in Montana is thinking when I'm worried about clean water and, you know, in South Florida? You right. know, very, very, t- very tough to galvanize all that. So that, you know, that's why an organization like TRCP becomes so crucial. So. Well, another cool thing about the forage fish issue is it's been a chance. So I, I mentioned like the Marine Life Protection Act in California and some of the you know, fights around access. This is an issue that brings everybody that cares about conservation together. You know, so we've been working with Chesapeake Bay Foundation, with Audubon, with you know, a variety of EDF, with others, you know, to, you know, to, because everybody can agree that basically mining the bottom of the food chain indiscriminately is a bad thing. And so in that sense, it's been good because, it's, you know, all of a sudden we have a lot more in common with what should be a lot of our natural allies than we have in the past. That's great. And what a, you know, what a great kind of foundational issue to surround that because then you can step off to all the other issues and say, yeah, if we're going to talk about menhaden and herring and forage fish and shad in this way, let's look at the residual problems and talk about those as well. So, yeah, exactly. And because I mean, Effect, I mean, relationships matter. And right. if you've been, you know, fighting side and side with, you know, alongside Audubon and all of a sudden they have a different issue on, you know, lead and refuges or something like that, you can have a civilized discussion because you know those folks, we work together well, may have a different take on it, but it's not just, oh, here they go again trying to screw us. And I think also that what you just said is also indicative of why this works as a conversation is there's the willingness to have the dialogue when so many other issues in our culture right now, the dialogue has just vanished. It's either I'm right, you're wrong, end of story. But the, but it, it seems that in fisheries policy, particularly in that bipartisan approach, that we're still having some degree of dialogue. Yep, totally agree. Yeah, and I think that uh, we're in a pretty good place right now. And I think we're going to keep getting stronger because every time you have a win, then uh, you just have that little bit of muscle memory about what it took to do that. You know, that's fantastic. You know, we've dived into some pretty heady policy matters today, and I appreciate your willingness to talk about all of this, as these are all very clearly important to anglers and hunters across the country. But I think to wrap up this a little more lightheartedly and to stick to the traditional closing question on the Rodcast, I have to ask you, what's your grail fish? What's the bucket list fish that's still out there calling you? I assume there's a fly rod involved or a striper involved. But what and where is that bucket list fish for you? You know, I have I have watched a lot of videos of giant trevally and like those hits where they go into those bays after the bait fish, which are just so cool. And, uh, you know, I would love to go chase giant trevally at some point in shallow water. Oh, fantastic. That, yeah, I'm right there with you. I want to do I have caught one giant trevally. But it should not be called giant because it was tiny. It was probably only two or three pounds. But what a great fish to target as a quest fish. So, yeah. well, Mr. Fosberg, thank you so much, uh, not just for this conversation, but seriously on behalf of all of us who are committed to conservation for hunting and fishing in the American great outdoors. I deeply grat- offer my gratitude for what you've been doing. And thank you so much for joining us on the Rodcast today. Well, Sid, thank you very much for having me on and uh, happy to talk again anytime. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Okay, my listening crew, after a great conversation like that, I think it's time that we take a bourbon break. That moment in the Rodcast when we set the rod aside, 
put our feet up and contemplate those fine spirits that just make the fishing life even better than it already is. And on today's bourbon break, I want to take a big swig or two from Slaughterhouse American Whiskey. Now, this is an interesting whiskey to consider because it has its origins in wine. That's right, Slaughterhouse American Whiskey is the brainchild of David Fenney, who founded Orion Swift Cellars, through which he began to produce the Prisoner line of wines back in 2000. This is a popular line of wines which can be found on supermarket shelves across the country. Then he sold his wine company and decided to turn to whiskey making, but he never really let go of his wine heritage, aging his whiskey and used wine barrels as part of the finishing process. Now, what that means is that after aging the whiskey in charred oak barrels, the whiskey is transferred to finishing barrels to add a new flavor to the whiskey. Now, this isn't a new thing, using wine barrels and port barrels to finish scotch, that's been done for a long time, and we're starting to see more and more American whiskeys and bourbons using this process as well. Now, the Slaughterhouse American whiskey carries a heavy corn mash bill of 85% corn, 8% wheat, 6% rye, and 1% malted barley. So you can anticipate that this is going to be a sweet whiskey with all that corn. Now, the American Slaughterhouse whiskey is aged for nine years in American oak, and then the whiskey is transferred to French oak barrels that had been used to age Napa Valley, Bordeaux, and other red wines. This finishing adds to the sweetness and the floral aspects of the whiskey. After the finishing, they then, and this is a quote, they, quote, tame the whiskey with pristine wine country water. Now, the label of the Slaughterhouse American Whiskey, a name that evokes a slew of campy horror films, including The Great Slaughterhouse Rules from, from 2018, featuring the amazing Simon Pegg. Well, the Slaughterhouse American Whiskey label has a very elegant look to it, and it features a label with what looks like an antique photograph or a daguerreotype of a butcher knife, which is kind of conjuring up that creepy gothic vibe. However, I can't find any indication as to why they named the whiskey Slaughterhouse. So there's no story out there, which seems to me not only to be dull in terms of establishing the whiskey's ethos, but also just bad marketing. Likewise, the bottle itself, though, it's, it's nothing unique. It's a design you'll see used by many distillers. It's best described as generic. Now, the nose of this four-grain whiskey is anticipated because of that heavy corn mash bill. It's sweet and aromatic. There's a lot of popcorn here from the corn, but also a lot of caramel and the sweetness of stewing fruits like prunes and raisins with a touch of toastiness from the oak. The Bordeaux is also evident with airs of that floral scent that I mentioned earlier. That sweetness, that dominates the palate as well, with lots of floral layers and fruit layers from that wine finish blended into the sweetness of caramel and honey accents of the corn-heavy whiskey. It's a rich palate with a good weight to it, but it seems expected, nothing unique in the palate that sets it apart from a dozen other whiskeys out there. It's also a lower proof whiskey at 88 proof, which I assume that water taming that they talk about, that that water dilutes down a bit. And as such, there's not much alcohol glow in the palate and not much in the way of a strong spice in the taste either. The finish just doesn't hang around long, and there's not really any shift in the taste spectrum at the end. Just more sweet, more corn, more Bordeaux-inspired fruitiness. All in all, there's nothing wrong with the Slaughterhouse American Whiskey, but there's nothing particularly arousing about it either. I guess if David Fenney was okay having his wine become popular on supermarket shelves, that he's achieved a similar mediocrity in his whiskey, which should be at home on the lower shelves in the liquor store, except for the fact that for a humdrum whiskey, it's a bit overpriced at about 40 to 45 bucks a bottle, a price tag that might encourage some ill-informed stock boy to put the slaughterhouse a few shelves up for where, from where its quality might otherwise place it. So, I am neither a fan nor not a fan of the Slaughterhouse American Whiskey. It's a mid-road whiskey, the kind of whiskey that might find a home at Olive Garden rather than at a good cigar bar. And those are my thoughts about Slaughterhouse American Whiskey. Hey, and as a final note in my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon, Breaks re uh, Bourbon Break Reviews well, they ain't sponsored. The distillers haven't sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all. Though, as always, I am open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. 
The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how that I have developed over many years, probably too many years, in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to the No Name Pub on Big Pine Key, one of the best drinking atmosphere in all of Florida's Keys, and certainly one of the best casual dining experiences in the Keys, but you got to find it to enjoy it because it's a bit off the beaten path on Watson Boulevard. And let me just say that if you are a pizza fan, you have to try the No Name Pub's amazing pizza. I cannot tell you how many times that pizza has elevated my spirits after a day on the water or a day of Keys-style drinking. The No Name Pub is an angler's establishment, and the crowd is always populated with anglers. From all over the lower keys. Man, how I wish I were there right now. But I wish I were drinking and fishing in the keys every day, or I wish that or I wish that I wish that every day. Something like that. And as a final word, I hope that today will be the least happy of your remaining days. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at Sid at inventivefishing.com. So let's tie one on and get back to casting. Yes, indeed. Project Command has it right. It is time for this week's top 10 list. And this week, my mind has been on King Mackerel because, well, I really like fishing for kings. I used to run clothespin rigs from the piers for kings, and I love casting to kings behind the shrimp boats. And of course, live baiting and drift fishing for kings is an absolute blast, as is trolling for them or casting to them. Now, I can certainly talk about using different stinger rigs for kings with live bait or churning them up with pilchards or other bait fish as chum, but there's not a lot to count down there. How do you count down those real smoker moments or those fantastic aerial strikes or the numbers of poor little greenies you pitch out there to chum the big boy smokers to the line? But we can count down my top 10 lures for targeting mackerels, and that's what we're going to do. So let's do just that. At number 10, let's open the day with CNH's King Buster. Now, really, the King Buster isn't a lure qua lure. It's a bullet-headed skirt made with a chrome-plated head that you rig strip bait, live bait, cigar minnows, or whatever with. But for whatever reason, the additional visual flair of the silver bullet head and the skirt, and I like the black and purple, by the way, well, that added flair to a bait just increases the likelihood of a king strike. I also like that CNH sells them in hundred packs or as singles, because let's face it, a king strike is basically the same thing as a torpedo with razored teeth plowing into your lure or your bait. And if you're fishing kings a lot, you're going to need and want a lot more than one or two of these around. All right. At number nine, let's go classic with Sea Striker Cedar Plug. Now, I know that the Sea Striker Cedar Plugs are a mainstay among tuna anglers, as well as striper and bluefish anglers, but they're also fantastic for kings. I mean, let's be realistic. There's nothing pretentious or technologically advanced about the Sea Striker Cedar Plug. It's a tried and true lure that works well when trolling, either up close in the wash or further out in your spread, or they work great as a casting plug too. Just a hands-down, iconic, dependable lure that kings will ruthlessly slam. I'm a fan of the blue and white sparkle color pattern, but the others are great just as well. All right, at number eight, like my shout out to CNH's King Buster at number 10, I also like the no alibi trolling feathers, which like the King Buster, you can rig skirt style with a strip bait or a live bait, or you can simply rig them as a trolling lure. I love the solid head on these lures, and they are effective at a range of trolling speeds. Hey, and as a side note, if you're trolling for kings instead of drifting for them, the ideal trolling speeds, from my experience, are to run your spread at 7 to 10 knots. So a bit of a faster speed, but not too fast like you would for who or something like that. And with the no alibi trolling feathers, I like the black and purple again for kings, but blues and whites work well too. 
And number seven, let's go with Almost Alive Lures Ribbon Fish. Now, kings love, love, love ribbon fish. And the Almost Alive Ribbon Fish is a damn good ribbon fish, ribbon fish imitator. This is a durable rubber lure that is available in a 12-inch version and a 17-and-a-half-inch version. They only come in about six color patterns, but I'm a fan of the black and silver. These come rigged or unrigged. All right, at number six, let's stick with the ribbon fish imitators and give a shout out to the Williamson Alive Ribbon Fish, a fantastic king lure. The Williamson Ribbon Fish features a great through lure wire that is rigged with triple treble hooks to help secure and hold the king's strike. Now, I will say I'm not 100% sure that the Williamson is still making the ribbon fish, though they appear in catalogs in a few stories, stores. They no longer appear in the Williamson site on the Rapala webpage. Nonetheless, if you can find them, they are top-tier king lures. Okay, bringing us to the halfway point. Let's go with Daiwa's Saltiga SK Jigs. And while I've thrown some trolling lures in the list so far, the Saltiga SK is a slow-jigging metal lure that is great when you have kings around a wreck or a reef. The falling, spinning action of the Saltiga SK is a great action for attracting a king strike. It can also be used as a cast and jig, cast and reel jig. I like it as a faster retrieve when you're fishing it this way. The dual single hooks are also great for grabbing into the king's toothy bite on a strike. All in all, the Saltiga SK is just a great lure to have around when kings are around. At number four, how about the classic, dependable Rappel Countdown Magnum? This may be one of the best saltwater lures ever made, and it certainly finds its application across a wide range of species, and among them is certainly the king mackerel. The Rappel Countdown Magnum is tough. Its saltwater-grade hardware and its African abachi wood body can really stand up to the king strikes. There are four models of the Countdown Magnum, ranging from a 4 and 3 eighths inch version to a 9-inch version. Each of these runs at a different, de different depth, ranging from a version at that runs at 13 to 15 feet down to a version that runs at 18 to 25 feet, giving you the ability to run the lure at a depth where the kings are patrolling. All right, at number three, let's go with Yozuri's Bonita Lure, a truly great high-speed trolling lure. I love the strength of this lure. Its solid body design wobbles in great action no matter how fast you run it. It double flat, its double flat forged stainless steel hooks are affixed to the lure with stainless steel bearing swivels that allow the hooks to run freely with a reduced opportunity to tangle. As I said, these are great high-speed trolling lures, and they really do their best at speeds of about 6 to 15 knots. They come in two sizes, a smaller 6 and 3 quarter inch version, and an 8 and a quarter inch version, and they're available in six different color patterns. Okay, coming in at the runner-up position, I want to go with a tried-and-true king lure, and that's Mirror Lure's Drone Spoon. Now, drone spoons are fantastic trolling lures for so many species, and when paired with a planer, you can run them at any, any depth. The flash and wobble of drone spoons make them an ideal king-attracting lure. Mirror Lure's original drone spoons are made of solid, high-polished stainless steel that is incredibly corrosion-resistant. There is no plating on these lures to corrode, to chip, to peel. They use strong, reliable hooks, and the rigging rings are solid nickel-silver and are hand-silver-soldered uh, hand for really tough strength. They range in size from half-inch models up to four-and-a-half-inch versions, and while the plain silver versions are great, I like the versions with the silver or green reflective tape on the exterior of the spoon, just an all-in-all-around reliable king lure. All right, that brings us to my favorite lure for targeting king mackerel. But before I share that wisdom with you, let me get a quick recap in case there's a quiz later. At number 10 is CNH's King Buster. At number 9, Sea Striker's Cedar Plug. At number 8, No Alibi's Trolling Feathers. At number 7, Almost Alive's Almost Alive Lures Ribbonfish. At 6, Williamson Alive Ribbonfish. At 5, Daiwa Saltiga SK Jigs. At 4, Rapala's Countdown Magnum. At 3, Yozuri's Bonita. And at number 2, Mirror Lure Drone Spoon. And that brings me to my number 1 lure for targeting king mackerels. And frankly, there's not much difference between my number 1 and my number 2 in this list. Because while number 2 is Mirror Lure's Drone Spoon, my number 1 is the LB Huntington Drone Spoon. And the only reason I'm placing the Huntington Drone at number 1 and the Mirror Lure Drone at number 2 is that hunting was the original Drone Spoon and that I started fishing them 
before I started fishing the mirror lure drones. But here's the reality of it. The mirror lure and the hunting drone, Huntington's drones, they're the same spoons with the same descriptions and the same effectiveness. There are two versions of the Huntington drone, the original and the eco lure. The original drone spoons are made of solid, highly polished stainless steel that is corrosion resistant. There's no plating to corrode, to chip or peel, as I said about the mirror lure also. The replaceable hooks are of the highest quality forged Mustad O'Shaughnessy patterns with filed hollow points and Duratin plated all the hooks. Huntington guarantees the hooks against breakage and they use solid nickel silver rings, which are hand silver soldered for the greatest strength of the rigging eye. They're available in sizes zero to four and a half and are available in 18 powder coated colors with or without one of the 15 flash scale colors to add to. So we can really combine the number one and the number two in this week's list and just say drone spoons, because whether it's mirror lures iteration or hunting and iteration, they're all the same spoon. And these are just fantastic lures for kings. And that wraps up the professor's top 10 king macro lures for this week. As usual, if you want to let me know your thoughts about this week's top 10, if you have king lures you think I should be looking at, or if you're a manufacturer or you want to alert me to your lure, just send me an email at sid at inventivefishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. And that's it for this top this week's top 10. Let's get back to casting. And here we are once again at the end of the line, at the end of another episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. I hope you had as much fun listening to me ramble as I did in doing the rambling. Ah, uh, ramble on, Rose. Did you say your name was Ramblin' Rose? Ramble on, baby. Settle down easy. Ramble on, Rose. Hey, before we turn out the lights on this one, I do want to thank, thank Whit Fosberg of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership for taking the time to talk with me today on the Rodcast. And I do want to thank him for all that he and everyone at TRCP does to help protect our accesses to the places where we fish and where we hunt. Hey, I do hope you enjoyed my review of Slaughterhouse American Whiskey, and I hope that my countdown of my top 10 lures for targeting kingfish was as useful as I thought it was. Hey, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. Go to Channel 9. I say again, go to Channel 9. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday next week, as it does every week. And I hope you and all the members of my listening crew will be spreading the word about the Rodcast. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future top tens, bourbon breaks, interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the, on any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventifishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventifishing, and be sure to check out all the great video content over on the Inventifishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a whole bunch of other content. Hey, I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on. The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on.